0: Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture reading is Luke 10, 1 through 9. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Everybody all right? Feeling good? Just imagine, 15 years from now, you're going to put on an old coat, and you're going to reach in the pocket, and you're going to pull out a mask, and you're going to get a little bit of PTSD. You're like, glad that's over. And the grandkids will be like, what's that? And you're like, let me tell you a tale about the time I watched Netflix for a year and a half and fought with everybody. (laughs) Okay, good to see you guys. Um, So yeah, totally unexpected. Um, The CDC knew my vacation was coming up, and they're like, why don't we just cut the guy a break and lift the mask mandate? So they did, Um, and they did it two days before a Sunday, and so we didn't have time to like gather and like, what what do we do here? And we're just kind of letting it settle in for a couple of days here. We're going to get together as a, as, a, as a board and talk about it. I mean, our whole commitment from the beginning to you guys has been, we're just going to follow the CDC guidelines. We're just going to do that. And uh, because they seem to be the authority, God seemed to give them the wisdom and the understanding. So we just followed them the whole time. Rather than like waffling on all kinds of stuff and a thousand voices, we just followed them. And they've changed their guidelines. And so we're going to get together and talk about it. Uh, and try to come in line with those uh, as quick as we can. But... Um, we need help. We, there used to be like this well-oiled machine that we had crafted over like 15 years. It was like over 100 people would show up in the morning and like do all kinds of stuff. Um, and that's all gone. So we're going to rebuild this thing from like, from like scratch and try to like get it the way, like the best way it should, take some of the things that we've learned before and bring that all, all into play. And uh, if you can make coffee or if you want to learn, if you can make donuts and cut them in half and put them on trays, if you can... Help park cars. If you can, like, serve in the children's ministry, we need all these things. We can't even open to full capacity until we get enough children's workers back there, which is apparently, um, I'm gonna, last I heard, we need like maybe 10 um, right now. So, um, yeah, I think for every, I think it's for every worker, we can add like, I think five or six kids, something like that. So that's a lot of kids. And there's a lot of families that wanna come. So I'm putting that all out there to let you know, like, super stoked, party. Like let's get if you're not vaccinated, get there so we can hug. Um, and then, um, and then think about like the part you want to play, like the role that you have in the community. And uh, I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna be super annoying about this, and I'm gonna like get talk to every one of you. I'm gonna be like, Hey, where are you serving? Stuff like that because we need you. We really do. Um, so this is our passage today, and you're like, Well, that's not what we've been studying. You're right, it's not. Good observation. I we've actually been going through the Book of Acts. Um, this is what we do. We sort of go through the books of the Bible, and we sort of pause at different things that sort of bring up subjects, and we talk about these subjects for a few weeks. Um, and so we're in Acts 17, and in Acts 17 is Paul's huge sermon on the mount, uh, I'm sorry, sermon on uh, sort of uh, the Aeropagist at, at Mars Hill to the, the people of Athens, the, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he says some brilliant things However, he does some things that are confusing, and it raises a lot of questions about things like evangelism. And, and evangelism is kind of, a, kind of a buzzword, like if you grew up evangelical, then you probably did evangelism, um, and you probably have particular thoughts about it and what it is, and, and you have a picture in your head of what it is, okay? I kind of want to like break that apart today, and I want to give you a sort of a wider picture of what it is, and how it can work, um, and how God sort of intends for us to, uh, to establish the kingdom and bring people in. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into Acts uh, 17 and, and, uh, and Luke 10 here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would continue to be present with us. You would guide us. We know you are here now. You are working uh, in this room. You're working in the lives of different people, bringing them to uh, sort of step by step, little by little, to a place where you want them to be. I pray that uh, we would follow your direction and end up at your destination, not our own. I pray that we would... Um, start to deconstruct sort of the the, the different facets of our life and reorient them around Jesus uh, and what you have for us. Um, I pray that this would be one of those topics, that we would understand uh, what it means to evangelize in a whole new way, that it would become more effective, more beautiful, more meaningful, um, more changing, not just for the people that that we are reaching out to, but for ourselves. And so... um, Thank you for the words that you've given me this week. I pray that they would be clear. I pray that they would be spoken. I pray that they would be received. And uh, I pray that we would all be transformed uh, because of this. Thank you. In your name. Amen. All right. Everybody still with me? Still with Okay, here we go. So, uh, we're in Acts 17. Paul's on Mars Hill. And Paul stands up to speak to the philosophers and the Stoics, the Epicureans. And he gets up and he gives a gospel message and a, an a invitation and a, pres- a presentation to come forward and get saved, right? No, he doesn't do any of this. He quotes their philosophers, he engages with their thoughts, Um, he sort of gives them some things to hold and think about and and inspect for a few minutes. He doesn't, again, he doesn't preach salvation by grace through faith, which is what he normally does. He doesn't trace uh, an atonement theory at all, sort of like through uh, the gospel when he's talking to the people in Athens. He doesn't even mention the cross, which is really interesting. He doesn't uh, talk about heaven, hell, law, grace, or any of that. He doesn't even try to get them to pray anything at all. Um, what Paul is doing is, is wildly different, and we talked about that last week. And so if you want more detail on that, uh, go back and listen to last week's podcast, YouTube, blah, 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 all that. Um, so the question you have, though, is like, was Paul evangelizing then? If this is what Paul was doing, was he evangelizing? Um, I believe he was. Uh, and to understand sort of what Paul is doing, we need to understand the word evangelism. It comes from this word um, euangelion. We can do this There's more people. Everyone say euangelion. Euangelion. Yes, okay. Uh, Euangelion is simply a a Greek word slash phrase. It means good news. That's what it means. Um, A a euangelion was a proclamation that would be made, typically in the Roman Empire, it would be made by somebody who worked for the king, uh, the emperor, and they would travel city to city, and they would stand up in the city square, and they would say, euangelion, and they would start proclaiming sort of the message of the king. And a message, a, a we we translate this word as as gospel, euangelion. Um, and so a gospel in the ancient world was a particular thing. Sometimes we think a gospel is just specifically the Christian message about Jesus uh, and having your sins forgiven, but it's not. A gospel was an ancient thing. A gospel was, again, this thing that would be proclaimed. And a gospel had always had a couple of, of ingredients. It had The proclamation that there was a new king, there was the story sort of a quick line, one-liner about how he became king, um, and then there was a quick line or two about what this meant for the world. New king, here's how he became king, here's what this means for the world. So when you read... Um, people like Paul, they are regularly offering these short little Gospels, oftentimes right off the bat at the beginning of the book. Galatians, for instance, Ephesians. Um, so let's look at this. Here is a Gospel that I wrote. Like This is, this is simply um, a simple, this would be a simple Gospel proclamation in the Roman Empire if we were talking about Jesus. It would say, the crucified and risen Jesus has ascended to the throne as Lord and King. He is now ruling over all things. He, his rule is expanding and His kingdom will have no end. That is the gospel of Jesus. It has all the elements, and a lot of people hear that, and they think, well, it doesn't have, though, it doesn't tell people what to do, and it doesn't say anything about um, what this means for your eternal soul. It doesn't say anything about this stuff. Yes, those are all repercussions of the gospel. Those are things that come from the gospel. So because this is true, the Gentiles can come to Christ by grace through faith, and not by works. Like, it's a whole, it is a statement with all kinds of ramifications, and oftentimes people are quoting the ramifications as if they are the gospel, but they're not. An ancient gospel, this is what it is. Um, it's a message about a new king, okay? How did, he, how did he become king? He was crucified and risen. Risen to become king, and uh, not just ending there, risen sort of to the throne at the, uh, the day of the ascension. And so it's all there. Now, evangelism is the proclamation of this good news. This is what it is. Um, and there's a long history of, evangel- uh, of evangelism. Um, and it is, no matter where you go throughout church history, it looks different, right? Um, if you go to the time of Constantine, here's the man himself, Constantine, um, throughout Christendom, Christendom is a way of describing the church mixed with the state. That's Christendom. It has, we have lived, human beings have lived in Christendom for 1,700 years because of Constantine. He merged the church with the state, brought them together. Uh, and gave the church the ability to sort of declare wars and all kinds of stuff. Like, the, the church was sort of, it was melded very deeply with this, and this is because the emperor became a Christian, if you will. Um, that's arguable. That's why I went like this. Sorry. Sometimes I, I don't want to go on a subject, but I kind of want to hint it. There's more there. Anyways. Um, so, the church is mingled with power and ruled over most nations, right? Um, and if you were a member of the states, then you were also a member of the church— So evangelization in the ancient world, in other words, bringing people into the church, was very simple. All you had to do was baptize them. That's what it was. And so, um, because if you were a member of the church, you were also a member of the state. You couldn't be, sort of during the time of Luther, you couldn't be a citizen of Germany without also being a citizen of the state. If you didn't get baptized, you weren't a member of the state, in, in which case you're kind of an outlaw, and you can be killed, and there's all kinds of things that would be ramifications of that. And so what they did was, They simply, whenever babies were born, they baptized babies, gave them back. You're a Christian now. There was no prayers. There was no altar calls. There was no personal decisions for Christ. There was nothing. There was no people standing on the street corner evangelizing. For much of Christendom, this is how it was. Um, This is what Luther actually did. Luther never gave gospel presentations. He argued about what the gospel was, but he never gave invitations for people to come forward and get saved and pray a prayer. Luther simply baptized babies. That was it. That was evangelism. Sounds pretty easy, honestly. Um, But there came a point in time where people sort of separated from this. There were all kinds of Baptist movements that sort of said, well, we think people should get baptized when they're adults. It should be their choice whether or not they actually join the church. And uh, this sort of spread, and eventually we come to this time now where the vast majority of people have not been baptized. And at some point we had to realize that, like, oh, people want to come to the church uh, if people want to come to the church, they need to be baptized. So how do we make people want to be baptized? And it's a whole thing where, like, now we have to come up with a strategy. And we have to sort of a pitch. We've got to bring people in. Like, here's what the church can do for you. And so we've come from the place of power of, like, we've got what you want. We'll give it to you. And 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 now we're at a place of, like, we think this could really help. Please come in. Like, this is kind of like, and the church at large is kind of like, we don't necessarily know how to do this. So there's been all kinds of strategies, all kinds of things. Um that have taken place, and when we do these things, we, we make a lot of assumptions with a lot of our strategies. Um, how many of you have ever done something called open-air evangelism? Uh, I did, yep. Uh, I did an Ybor. as a teenager one time, too. Stand down there and pass out tracts and stuff like that um, as a teenager to grown men who were scary. I was like, yes, yes sir, take this, um, and uh, they're like, what is it? I'm like, it's not, I don't know, and just, I'm afraid. You know what I mean? Like, it's confrontational. Not confrontational. Um, But it is that. And so uh, there's all kinds of techniques that I was taught to use to try to argue people. Like sort of, some of them, uh, the best. Okay, the best was I I had this stack of cards. And uh, they were like, it was like a survey. You know, people on the streets doing surveys. And two questions into this survey, you realize I'm not doing a survey. Uh, What's your name? Where are you from? What do you do for a living? If you were to die right now, (laughs) where would you go? And they're like, and, like, I'm trying to trick somebody into becoming a Christian. Like, whoops, ah, I'm a Christian. Um, and then, so we make a lot of assumptions with these things. Okay, so I want to talk about some of the assumptions that come with this form of evangelism that many of us have been, have been taught. Um, so the assumptions are, 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 are many. One of them is, uh, okay, are we working? Here we go. We assume that people are asking the same questions as Christians. We assume, for instance, that they have the same fears. When oftentimes they don't. The thing you're trying to save them from, they're just not interested in being saved from. Like, they don't care about it. Like, they're not interested. Um, We assume they have the same picture of the universe, how it begins and how it will end. We just assume that they have the same thoughts of, like, Genesis and Revelation that we do. Uh, And we approach them like that without asking any questions at all. Um, Another assumption that we have is that we assume that they understand our language. We assume, I mean we assume that they understand things like sin and the concept of hell, the concept of, of the concept of, of the soul, the concept of all kinds of stuff. Like, I assumed everyone was on the same page as me when I was a 17-year-old kid walking around. Like, um, you, I mean, when I'm 17 years old and I'm asking grown men, do you know where you're going to go when you die? Like, this obviously doesn't flow out of regular conversation. This, this isn't like, a regular conversation you have with people. The only way to get there is to sort of manipulate the conversation and to sort of, I start talking to them and I like take a hard, like I turn it towards this thing that they may not even be interested in talking about. Um, And so you sort of have this, to have a conversation about death with somebody requires some semblance of like intimacy and closeness, doesn't it? Like you don't just talk about death with people all the time. Um, It requires a sense of trust that you care about them, some knowledge about each other, about about how you know what you know and how I know what I know. Um, we, we live in an age of, of lies and people care about the truth more and more and more as these lies affect the different parts of our lives. And so we aren't just listening to everybody. Um, so, okay, let's, let's talk about another one. Um, next assumption that we have is that we assume that we have something that they are searching for. Maybe you don't though. Maybe, maybe they're happy, and it's hard for you to admit. Like, maybe they're fine. Maybe they're happy, and if that's the case, then what's your what's your movement? What's your what's your argument? It, it, like, we assume that they have the same the same like desires and the same things that we are we are looking for. Um, and so, okay, let's look at let's look at uh, the last one here. We assume that the results are measurable, and this is a big one for me. It, it was always sort of like. Um, here's the thing that we did, here's how many people showed up, and here's how many people made decisions for Christ, and this is how you measured whether or not the whole event was successful and the money spent was worth it. And it's sort of like the thing when I talked about patience a few weeks ago. When we decide to, like, spend time with people, like to spend time with people, like when we use language like that, we're treating, we're, we're kind of treating time like a commodity, Right? Instead of, like, dedicating time to somebody to, to like, to just to, to, to be with them and to love them, we tend to invest time in people, which we want to return. We're not okay if they don't change, and, and the time wasn't worth it. And so this is what we apply that here as well. We, it has to be measurable. I want to know how many people. Every year I have to write a report to the district, the denomination that says, how many people, and they use the lingo, receive Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior, that kind of stuff. Um... And they want to know the numbers, and that's how they're trying to determine sometimes whether or not a church is effective. This is nowhere in the Bible, just so you know. It's, it's, just, it's not there. This is us trying to solve problems that we have caused by our own methods of, uh, of like, manipulating church over church history, manipulating sort of the ways that we gather. Once we mixed it with Christendom, the early church thing sort of fell away, and we lost our, like, our reason for pulling people in. And it became very hard to explain and very confusing. And we've been trying to recapture that ever since. But instead of going back to the early church for the first 300 years and what they were doing, we go to business leaders and we look at CEO strategies. And we try to figure out how can we build this thing in a way that Americans will understand business. But when we do that, we have disconnected from something much bigger. I mean, I was trained to use the Roman's Road, the wordless book, if you've ever seen that one. Uh, I did the Ten Commandments method where you, you sort of talk to somebody and you get them to admit that they're a, a lying, stealing, murdering adulterer. <laughs> and you're like, what's your name again? <laughs> I was just going to call you that. Um, and so each one of these methods was designed on purpose to be coercive. It was designed for me to coerce you into something. Something. Uh, to force you to make a decision that you never intended to make at this point in time. You didn't go to the grocery store to confront your eternal soul. That's not. You went there for lemons. That's, um, and suddenly you're like lemons and a side of like oh, eternal conscious torment. Like I don't know. And then uh, like and and to present someone with a proposition that they that they must right now accept or reject or receive eternal consequences of this whole thing. Like suddenly you find yourself faced with something that like you are unprepared for. You've not, the spirit has not moved in your life in any way to prepare you for anything like this. The 17 year old boy moved, that's what happened. And it's uncomfortable, right? How many of you, this will be fun. How many of you have run away from a Christian evangelizing? I have. Because I, it's wildly uncomfortable. Like we have to admit this. Not just for the person doing it for the person you're doing it to. I'm not saying it's wrong. Like, discomfort, fine. But I do want to talk about what was Jesus doing? I think that's probably how we should, like, reform this thing. Because it's lost its ability to actually make an impact at this point. There was a time when I was a kid where it was actually relatively effective at bringing people in because people had these thoughts, but now, not so much. Um, So... I want to talk about also some of the flaws in these assumptions. I mean, what happens when you're sitting at a cafe and you strike up a conversation with someone um, who is very much in distress about their actual real life that they're already living, and they're very much in distress about it, and someone breaks down about their divorce or someone has just lost a spouse or a child or parents, someone is simply lonely or depressed, and you're talking to them and they're unloading this because you've built sort of a, a rapport with them, but all you know how to do is hand them a track or flip to the, flip to the book of Romans and go through the Romans road uh, and show them how sinful they are and how terrible things are going to be for them in the future. But what do you, like first off, first off read the room. That's not your place right now. Like that's not what you're doing. Right now somebody is in intense pain and your, your role is to be the presence of Jesus with them. That's your entire role there. Um, evangelism, you guys, is not this like, one-size-fits-all product that you can learn to use and bend people towards your ends of assimilating them into the church. It's not even the goal of evangelism, of the good news, of the Evangelion. Like, that's, that's not what it is. Evangelism done right will change you every bit as it will change this person that you are building this relationship with. It is meant to be mutually transforming for both of you. Like, It will draw you into this transformational relationship. And and this is what the church, by the way, is supposed to be made of. All kinds of people at different walks of life with different thoughts on everything. And, and, And even if there's like divisions and disagreements, we understand the communion table is what unifies us because the grace of God is what unifies us and brings us together. And so we purposely enter into these difficult relationships with each other because we believe they will be transformational because the Spirit of God is a part of them. And so I am friends with people that I disagree with because I believe the Spirit of God will use me to transform them and probably use the Spirit of God in them to transform me as well. And we can both not become deeper into what we were but become more like Christ together. Like this is what we're doing. This is the goal of the whole thing. Um, The gospel always comes incarnationally and humbly into a place. It does not come with arrogance and coercion into a place looking around saying, Who's my target? This is not how it enters into the world. This is not how Jesus entered into the world. Each side has their own culture, their own language, and you never know what God is doing in this or that community until you actually learn to be present with them in an incarnational way. You don't know what God is doing in a community until you exist in that community for a while, until you spend time with them and learn their ways and their cultures and their language and understand their hurts and their pains, and you spend time amongst them as Jesus put on... The form, that God put on the form of man in Jesus and entered into our world to endure our struggles and our pains and our sufferings so that he could let us know that he understands and walk us out of it. This is what should be happening in evangelism. This is the whole point of, of the work of Jesus through the Incarnation. We need to find ways to communicate with people that Jesus is indeed Lord of your life and is already working in your situation and he wants to work here and here and here. And so the person who is pouring their heart out to you and their pains and their sufferings, you are there to receive that and to assure them Jesus is Lord of that too. Jesus is Lord of that too. He has been working. He already, Long before we started talking, long before you knew that this was even coming, God was already working in this situation, and he's doing something through that, and I don't know what it is, but I'll, I will walk through it with you and be present with you in this to see what God is doing. This is how Jesus did evangelism. This is how the apostles regularly did uh, evangelism. Um, <clears throat> the gospel always comes incarnationally. We need to find ways to communicate this thing that Jesus is already Lord of your life. There, uh, but instead we end, up, we end up oftentimes offering it to a, offering sort of this gospel proclamation to a, a a starving person and say, Well, I know things are really bad, but after you die, they could get worse. So take this, and it'll be better when you're dead. I can't I can't help you now. God has no answers for you now. God has nothing to say to the injustice of the world and the the separateness of the world and the oppression and um, all the things people are suffering through at the hands of other people and powerful groups of people. Like God has really nothing to say to that. But but here's something for later. It's no use now. Put it in your pocket and just hold on to it. We offer it to the lonely person so they don't have to be alone after they die. We offer it. uh, I mean, instead of, of 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 bringing people into this awareness that God is already at work in their lives we sort of encourage them to separate their spiritual life as this other later thing and this personal inward thing you do early in the mornings and when you're dead. We sort of separate their lives and say you have all these pains and sufferings and like, but I've got something for this. I don't have anything for that. And when you, when you bring this to them, here's the thing. What you save people with is what you're saving them to. And you have to grasp this. This is why, by the way, I'm always warning like church plants, go easy on the t-shirts and the concerts and the free gimmicks and the iPad giveaways. What you save them with is what you're saving them to. They're going to expect t-shirts and concerts and iPads. Like, this is what they're going to expect. And if you tell people, this is all about that, their life will show that. If, it's, if it's, it's not about this at all, well, what do I do now? Just, in general, be good. Here's some Ten Commandments. Follow these. But you're waiting for that. And when you do this, you're assuring that they will never plug the rest of their life in and orient it around actual Jesus. Yeah. You're assuring them. You're basically ensuring That their life will belong to them, and their entire life, they will just be, they will default to whatever the culture around them is doing, and when they talk about this specific subject, they're going to talk about Jesus. But everything else, Jesus has nothing to do with that. And so, if you only care about their souls and not their world, they will never care about their own soul, they will only ever care about their own soul, but not their world. You are creating more people who care less about the world and only about people's souls. And when we think like this, this is how we end up with ministries that will preach the gospel to people but not feed them in starving countries. This is is how we end up with churches that will preach about the love and graciousness and mercy of God but not care anything about oppression in communities, that God's not interested. And so you can't just do this. We are separating what God is trying to do, which is create a people whose entire existence centers around Jesus for the purpose of them fulfilling what they were actually born to do and set the worlds to right. And this is something you can invite people into. So how are we to think about our role then? What do we do? How does this work? How are we to think about our role in sort of the work of God in this world? Well, let's go to a couple of passages. Uh, John 5, let's see, is this, yes, uh, oh no, this is Luke 10, we'll go to this in a second. John 5, Jesus tells a crowd of people, my father is always working, here, I'm gonna back this up so it didn't distract you, uh, my father is always working, <laughs> My bad, my bad. Oh, oh, we're gonna go through the whole thing again. Anyways, sorry. It's all linear. Keynote's free. None of that media shout stuff for us. That stuff's expensive. That money can feed people. All right, here we go. Um, now, John five. Jesus looks at a crowd of people and he says, "My father is always working, and I do what I saw my father do." So he says, basically. My Father is always working, everywhere. He's always out there doing His thing, always. And I am here, Jesus says. And by the way, if Jesus is saying about Himself, He's also talking about you and your role in the world. If this is what my Father has done, my role here is to to move throughout the world looking for what my Father has been doing and also take part. My Father has has never stopped working anywhere. Um, So... The Father has always been there working and moving people forward. And we can assume that wherever you are, Jesus is already there working. The Spirit is already there preparing people uh, to meet this person, preparing you to meet this person. Um, so we can assume that God is there working. And our responsibility in all this, I mean, we talked already about this a few weeks ago. We talked about the, remember, the omnipresence of God. It's the big theological word. Omnipre, it just means God's everywhere. And what's God doing? He's working. He's bending people, like people and things, sort of towards goodness. This is what God is doing in the world. And he's everywhere. And the work of the Christian is to be the manifest presence of that omnipresence, that everywhereness of God. The manifest presence is what people can see. It's God in this place doing the work of God. It's the body of Christ there. So a Christian enters into a space and finds out what God is doing through prayer, relationship building, Listening to the Spirit, and now begins to take part in that. This is the manifest presence. Of Jesus. We can assume that wherever you are, Jesus is there working. And if you want to bring people to Jesus and integrate them into the family of the church, you yourself, though, must actually have this relationship, this awareness, this daily awareness of Jesus and what Jesus is doing in the world. You yourself need to be every day constantly cultivating the presence of God in your life, listening, spending time, and meditating upon the word of God, the things of God, praying, talking to God. This isn't just going to be something that God is going to do all by himself, and that's it. God is asking if you will partner with him, You are the conduit of God's love and grace and presence into this world. God chooses to work through presence. God has always, only ever worked through presence. Uh, this is the message of, of the entirety of the Scriptures. The, the Garden of Eden, God is there with them in the garden, and he's working through presence, and he's cultivating and bringing things to fruition. Eventually, he can't be there, and we've talked about this before. Um, and then, God is present with them at Sinai. God meets them there. Present with them on top of the mountain. And as we move through the Bible, like God gets closer. He, he's a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. And then He is, he is the tabernacle in their midst. And they set up their, their whole entire camp around Him. He's in their midst. He's present with them. And then He's the temple. And then He's Jesus Himself incarnated with us, walking and listening and teaching. God is always working to get closer with His presence. And after Jesus and the ascension, resurrection and the ascension, we have the the Spirit of God present with us, indwelling us. God can't get close enough to us because how God works is through presence, through being there with us. This is the whole message of the Bible. Evangelism, then, is going and being among people. It's actually not that complicated. It's nurturing yourself and your soul through the community of God, through the presence of the Spirit, through all of that, and then going and being amongst people. It's a completely different posture than how than these coercive methods that we tend to use, Um, because it is it is presence without objective. It is presence without coercion. It is presence without ulterior motives. It's entering into somebody's world to be the presence of Jesus in their world, to be with them, to learn, to listen to walk in their shoes, to suffer alongside of them, to build relationships, all of that. It is presence with love. But the practice of presence is wildly different because then we are proclaiming the gospel um, out of listening and hearing the struggles and the pains that each person is going through. The gospel proclamation must not come out of nowhere. It comes out of actual real life and suffering and pain and injustice. That is where the gospel comes out of. And we, we listen and we take in what they're going through. And out of this and this empathizing and this feeling and, and being present with them, the gospel arises out of it to speak into these situations. And the spirit of God begins to take root and work. This is how I feel and believe evangelism was... In, Intended to be done. Not this one and done, prayer, prayer and get out of it. None of that. It is a commitment to people. Not this thing where you get them to pray a prayer and you just never see them again and you put one on the tally and you're like, I got one. Like, no, no, no. They are yours now. They belong to you. You walk with them, you stay with them. Um, let's go a little farther. Like, this is literally how Jesus evangelize. At one point in Luke 10, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Um, why is the harvest plentiful? Because the Father has been working. He's been, he's been sowing and, it's, and it's, it's all come up and it's ready and God is there calling on his people to come out and be amongst the world that he is working in. And we tend to want to stay in our houses, stay in our little sanctuaries, stay in our churches, and we we just want to be around people that are just like us. We never want to venture out and build relationships with anyone who is different from us. But the harvest is plentiful, but there's nobody out there. The laborers are few. If there is a harvest, then Jesus has already been out there working. It's already there to be harvested, but there's no one there to participate in it. And it's like God is out there all alone working and waiting for his people to go out and be there to manifest his presence. And he's saying, can't you just be where I'm working? We ask questions. Well, I mean, how, how do I know where God's working? Read the life of Jesus. Read the very first thing Jesus said. He stands up in the temple. I have come to bring good news to the poor, the suffering, to the hungry. So he goes down a long list: freedom for the prisoner and the captive. Like, there's other passages where people ask Jesus. Jesus kind of says to him, he's like, he's like, hey, I mean there will be many people who will stand before me and I'll say, like, I I don't even know you. It's like, how how could you say I don't know you? Because I never met you because I, I was the hungry person on the side of the road and you didn't come feed me. I was the naked person. You didn't clothe me. I was in prison and you never came to visit me. You never did anything for every time I was. In other words, Jesus says, that's where I am. You wanna know where God is and what God is doing? Poor and oppressed peoples all around you. I know you don't wanna admit that, but this is what God cares about. God is desperately caring for and working on behalf of the suffering people in our world. That is where God is, that is what God is doing. If you want to spend some time with God, that's where you got to go. Um that is where you got to go. Um and let's I mean God is literally asking for presents. Let's go a little farther. Uh, this is the passage we read earlier. Let's start, let's start in verse three. This is the passage we read at the beginning. He says, go, I am sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. Don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone uh, who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, uh, it will return to you. Uh, stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And so there's all these like, Very particular instructions, and we could go into details and talk about all these things, but I want to just look at a a couple of them real fast. I mean, it starts off, he says, I'm I'm sending you out like lambs amongst wolves. In other words, you are not the wolves. You're not pursuing everyone. You're not out there chasing people around, hitting them over the head with the Bible. That is not your role. You are there to be the sacrifice. They want to eat you. You have something that they want, and they don't even realize it. Like, what you have, they want. Um, But this is a totally different posture than, like, I have what they want, and I'm choosing who I'm going to give it to. This is none of that. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Like, you, you are not the one that chooses. You don't get to choose which wolf you engage with this very day. And, And let's go a little farther. Don't take a purse or a bag. Like, you are not in control. Don't take your money. Don't choose who you will greet on the road. Don't... It says, don't greet people on the road. In other words, like, you don't get to choose who you will talk to. You don't just greet people who are like you. This was the tradition in that day. Cross along the other side of the road with people who you don't like. This is not how this works. You don't choose. God is going to do this for you. He says, don't be in a hurry. Don't move from house to house and place to place. He says, he says stay there. Don't move around from place to place. Be present. And he says, if, if they put something in front of you, eat it. You are not in control. You are there. You are the presence of God. God is in control. Let God do what God's going to do. He has already been working. You be present. You love them. You build this relationship. You listen. You pay attention. Listen to what God is doing. If your posture is, I mean, he also says, like, if you find, like, um, heal the sick who who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So if something is broken, fix it. If someone is unwell, heal them. If If they are in need in some way, meet that need and then explain the kingdom of God has come near you. Let them lead the conversation. Just explain. Explain why you live the way that you do. And mean it. And don't lie. Live that way. If your posture is always I am in control, um, I have this salvation and I decide who to offer it to and who to speak to and when and where. If that is your posture, you, you aren't ready. Your posture should simply be I am here because God is working here. He has told, he has told this to us and he, he, he needs me. I'm a human being uh, to harvest what he has been growing. I, this is why I'm here. This is why, back in the book of Genesis, I was even created in the Imago Day, to be the presence of God in that space. That's my role. Um, And so what does this mean? How do we, how are we to, like, 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 I have some suggestions. Let's talk about this. Um, You might be asking, like, what do I do then? How does this even work? Well, there are some quite simple ways you can cultivate a life of evangelism, like an entire life of evangelism, without even thinking about it. It's becoming second nature. There are ways you can cultivate this. One of them is to simply start, start a ritual, a simple, small ritual. And you can choose what that ritual would be, but it should involve picking a place, maybe a lunch spot or a park bench somewhere, somewhere preferably amongst the poor and everyday people, middle class, poor. Um, be amongst the people, pick a spot, and be there regularly. At the same time, expect it every week for, a mat- for some amount of time. And be there. And just be present and be prayerful and look around. I have, I have a friend, um, a, a, a professor, he's a mission and he says that every, um, he spends every Saturday morning finishing up his, his sermons because also, he also preaches. Every Saturday morning, he spends the morning um, at the same McDonald's, and he's done this for like eight years. He goes to the same McDonald's every Saturday morning and sits in a booth right in the middle of the restaurant and does his studying there, and he makes sure to keep his headphones out and his eyes up so he can greet people, and he starts seeing the same, after a couple weeks, a couple months, you start meeting the same people, you learn their names, you hear them talking, you help them, they drop something, you help pick it up, you build relationships, and God begins to do things. God begins to build and weave them into your life, which tends to transform both of you uh, into the people that God wants you to be. And these conversations happen. God guides them. You don't. You are there being the presence of God that they need you to be. Be there regularly, once a week. Eat a meal there, at the same time, same day, every week. Eat a meal with the poor every single week. It is a spiritual discipline the church has always practiced. You cannot live your life avoiding the poor. Um, make yourself available and present. Put your phone away, look around, be prayerful, and open up the, open up in that space. Um, nothing might happen for weeks, months, or years. Nothing. Nothing. And that's Okay. The journey continues to shape you. The discipline. Every day I wait on you, God, and I go to this place, and I sit, and I wait, and I try to figure out what you are doing. But eventually God reveals himself. I have experienced this many times. I used to study at the exact same place at King Corona, uh, down in Ybor, every week. Made friends. Um, They ended up coming to church eventually. Some of them uh, became followers of Jesus, and some of them are living in other places now, actually working in churches and stuff. Like, I, This has happened. I, I, this has happened at the barbershop. shop. This has happened everywhere. If I go to the same place at the same time and see the same people, God works in that. If I'm open to them, if I'm present with them, if I open up to like what they have, what God is doing, there, um, something happens. A word is spoke. The moment suddenly becomes very, very heavy. It's what the Celtic Christians call a thin space. And have you ever been there, like, have you ever like had a conversation with somebody, and you realize, oh, this is a holy, sacred conversation. The Celts used to call that a thin space. This is where it's where the sort of the boundary, as they would say, and I love it. I love the language. The boundary between heaven and earth is especially thin right now. And they said baptisms were thin spaces. Um, communion was a thin space. It's the place where God is there, very, very present, and you can almost feel him pushing against where you are. Like you can feel the Spirit of God doing something, and this conversation has suddenly changed, and now it has suddenly some eternal ex- uh, significance and consequence. And here we are. I cannot tell you how beautiful it is when you see it come to fruition. I spent a couple of weeks ago... I, I, um, Let's say, how long ago was this? This was, okay, this was like, this was like four months ago. Um, I was hanging out at, at a bar late night with some friends, and it just kept getting later and later, and just kept hanging out. And there were some people that were friends of theirs that uh, I had never really met, but I sort of knew who they were because they were in like the music industry and stuff, and I was talking to them. And, um, and we ended up talking for several hours, about three in the morning. We all pack it up and we leave, and I get a text the next morning because the conversation got incredibly heavy, and it got really, really beautiful. And he started asking my opinion about Jesus, That's your first mistake. All right. And we talked about Jesus. And I got a text the next day. It was forwarded to me from someone else who was in a group chat with him. And he said, and it literally, he cursed. And then he said, I'll just say, he said, he said, damn it, this is why I don't go drinking out late at night. Because I end up a Christian again. (laughs) Like, this this is what happens. Like, make space for people. Talk to people. You're not wasting your time. Be there. Be out there. Build relationships. Don't don't run around trying to make Christians out of people. That's not your job. Be the presence of Christ there, which means you're there for the healing. You're there for the encouragement. You're there for the relationship building. You're there to open some eyes so they can look at the world in maybe a slightly different way this day. And maybe three months later when you see them again and you have more conversations, this will happen again. Evangelism is not hiding in your suburban house for, for years on end, and then once a month going out with people on a Saturday night and bothering people who are out trying to enjoy their weekend. This is not evangelism. They're running away from you. Evangelism is presence. The good news is that God has drawn near. God has made himself king of all things in every aspect of somebody's life. That is the center of evangelism. Presence. And so that, uh, that's what I have for you today. I, I, I wanted you to think, sort of think about this in a new way. I've been having all kinds of conversations about like, what this looks like with my sort of old seminary cohorts and stuff. And um, I, think, I think if we begin to make practices like this, I think we can begin to fully grasp the level of pain and hurt in our communities and then come together as the body of Christ to help heal some of this. So why don't we make that some of our focus? Start now. Pick a place. Spend a few minutes there regularly, every week. And just pay attention. Okay? Would you guys close with me in a word of prayer? Let's, let's stand and pray. Um, I'll pray and then we'll do the Lord's Prayer together. And then we'll be on our way. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I lift them all up to you. I pray that um, everywhere that they go, they would realize you have been there the whole time. You have been working and the fields are ready to be harvested these people that we are passing by you have your arms wrapped around them you know their name you know what they need I pray that you would somehow help us to become the conduit of your love to this world, to these people help us to be present wherever it is that you are working no matter how uncomfortable no matter how dangerous no matter how Um, mundane it all seems. Let us understand that this is how you bring salvation into our world, and this is how we bring salvation into their world as well. And let us, attempting, as we attempt to bring salvation into the world, let us find it as well in these other people. Work through them to change us as well. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. All right, so do this with me, nice and loud. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all. Grace and peace. It's great to see you all again. Take some deep breaths and relax and we'll we'll be emailing people later this week. Love you all. Have the greatest Sunday of your life. Thank you.